0: Welcome to Mediapath. I am Louise Planker.
1: And I'm Fritz Coleman.
0: Today on the show, we bring you filmmaker Denny Tedesco, whose iconic documentary, The Wrecking Crew, serves as a love song to his father, Tommy Tedesco, and to all of the stellar and largely unsung musicians who created the soundtrack of the 60s. But first, Fritz and I are going to recommend some viewing to enrich and adorn your media path. Uh, Fritz, what have you got for us?
1: Okay, well, we're, we're talking about music today with one of the greats. And so I thought I'd do two streaming films about music. One's fictional, one's the documentary. The first one is called The Sound of Metal. This is streaming on Prime right now, directed by Darius Martyr. It stars Riz Ahmed as the lead character, Ruben Stone, along with Olivia Cooke as his girlfriend and bandmate, Lou. Paul Racy as Joe, who's kind of a spirit guide and a Yoda-type figure. Ruben is a punk metal drummer, and he and Lou travel around doing small gigs in their motorhome slash mobile recording unit. And Ruben's life is thrown into turmoil when he starts to lose his hearing. And so he goes to a specialist. The specialist says it's only going to get worse. And Ruben's whole identity is his music and feels like his life will come to an end when his hearing ends. He's also a recovering heroin addict. He's been sober for four years. And Lou is the lead singer in his small group, gets him into a secluded, sober living house specifically designed for deaf people. So there are two paths that Ruben is on in this movie, one to stay sober and the other to learn to be deaf. Now, a rocky start at the sober house leads to eventually him learning how to communicate using sign language. He also learns... That he can find value on the planet outside of being a drummer. And that's a big thing for him. He can be important to other people and to himself without being a drummer. He learns about silence, he learns about stillness, he gets a double cochlear implant that may or may not be the answer to all of his problems. It's really moving in this movie. We see to watch Ruben's transformation from being a punk metal drummer where loud sounds mean everything to a world where sounds mean nothing. Riz Ahmed is a Pakistani from London. He studied philosophy and politics at Oxford. He did a satirical rap album under the name Riz MC. He got a Golden Globe nomination for best actor this past run. I think this movie is a great undiscovered gem and some great undiscovered acting talent. I think he's got a real career in front of him. Love this movie. Didn't know anything about it. Just dove into it and it was really a great surprise.
0: You have sold me and I'm hoping it's closed captioned.
1: <laughs> it doesn't have to be. It would That's be the, so <laughs> sad if it weren't. No, there are there are some areas of <laughs> okay. that. But I will, I'll, and this is all I want to say about it because I have a tendency to talk too much about movies I like and then people say, why don't you just shut up? There is uh, there is some uh, electronic tricks they do to make you understand what it's like for a person with partial hearing to hear partial sounds, and they do a spectacular job. And you really find yourself empathizing with his positions.
0: Really good film. You'll, you'll I guarantee you'll love it. No, it's like it's like that that you've described a film that's trying to do an awful lot, and if it successfully does all of that, well, you know that's magic. Beautiful. All right. Are you ready for my pick? Mm -hmm. I've got Murder Among the Mormons. Fritz, have you watched this one? I've heard about
1: it, though. I can't wait to hear about it.
0: So it's a three-part documentary series on Netflix. Netflix's latest true crime documentary series, Murder Among the Mormons, chronicles the strange events surrounding a trio of bombings that rocked Salt Lake City in 1985. It's a disturbing and complex story that has remained largely unknown outside of the Mormon community. The series comes from Jared Hess, who you may have recalled was one of the creators of Napoleon Dynamite, and Tyler Meesom, whose credits include An Honest Liar. Both were raised in the Mormon faith. Since the story is not widely known outside of Utah, the filmmakers were able to suspend the who-done-it for an episode and a half. And then, in episode three, they reveal how and why the perpetrator did it. This one will keep you thinking and talking for some time, so dive in. Wow. Netflix
1: is really uh, going all in on these crime multi-part series. They've done some really good ones. They, they have to
0: because we're... women are stuck at home. And this is <laughs> so what women do. Women, women are All right. well, Women solve crimes. That. I know it.
1: Okay. Well, the second movie I told you is a documentary. It's called Biggie. I got a story to tell. It's on Netflix. There have been tons of of documentaries and TV news stories about the life of Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. Big Papa, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G.
0: He should have just called himself A.K.A. (laughs) Seriously. Well,
1: Biggie achieved icon status during rap's golden era in the 90s. He's considered one of the most influential rappers of all time, as a matter of fact. He came up in the roughest part of Brooklyn around the Fulton Street area. There's lots of camcorder video in this movie to take you from the beginning of young Christopher's life on the streets, where the greatest economic and social status you can attain is by selling drugs. And he did that. It's a path very similar to the one taken by Jay-Z from drug dealer to famous rapper to wealthy entrepreneur. And one of the runners in the film is a really personal commentary ongoing about Biggie's talent and his importance to rap by Sean Puffy Combs, who helped to launch his career. And a point made by the movie, and this is really interesting for American history, is the parallel rise in the crack epidemic and hip hop. The movie illustrates that one led to the other, how the crack epidemic was the scourge of urban black life in the 1990s, and how enterprising young guys like Biggie used one to escape to the other. It goes back to some of the rough Brooklyn neighborhoods where hip-hop first got started, a Brownsville section, Bedford-Stuyvesant. This is one of those circumstances where he was loved in his home area because he escaped and made good. And that emotion really shows up when you see his homies react as his funeral procession slowly moves along the streets of Brooklyn. As I said, this material has been covered before. What it doesn't cover, and I want to talk about this even though the movie doesn't, Mm -hmm. is to solve the mystery of his shooting at the Peterson Auto Museum in L.A., which was rumored to have been retribution for the killing of Tupac Shakur in Vegas a bit before that. It was a famous East Coast, West Coast beef that continues even today. And there was even sketchier rumors. These are unsubstantiated rumors that off-duty LAPD cops were involved in the hit on Biggie. There was even a feature film made about that. It was completed, starring Johnny Depp as uh, as one of the homicide detectives, but the movie was shelved. It was quashed, and we don't know why, but I think too many people had too much to lose if this movie were to be released. So it's a fascinating—they don't talk about that topic. That was just my addition, but—
0: No, I mean, there's a, a lot that's been said and written and, and uh, discussed about— these two murders, but you know, one of the takeaways, cause I did watch this one last night Fritz. but one of the takeaways for me is how the warlike footing of the drug trade kind of leaks into the, their, their music careers. Yeah. Like they, they don't know how to reposition themselves otherwise. Good point. And, and, and so it, it's a mystery as to whether or not Tupac and Biggie had anything to do with each other's murders, but it, it stands to reason that it might, and uh, it's interesting that Biggie, after his after his success, and then after the murder of Tupac, it, maybe I have the timing wrong, but immediately goes to L.A., almost like it felt like a victory lap, and, yeah, and they may have his hood,
1: going into his, his yeah, head. and
0: they may have seen that as the height of arrogance, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that was just the things that I wondered. I know nothing about it, but. It was fascinating. If
1: you're interested in that topic, I'll just add this: uh, Netflix did a documentary about uh, Suge Knight too, and Suge was implicated in all the Tupac stuff. And so, if you want like more three dimensional looks at that topic, that's there for you too.
0: Oh, now yeah. let's get he's, to our fantastic
1: guest. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, guy Suge
0: being is a favorite. key ingredient in, into all of yeah. this. Mm-hmm. It's Fascinating. So I've got one more for you, Fritz. Have you watched? Oh, good. Have you watched? I care a lot. No. Okay. So this is a uh, kind of a. Farcical drama? I don't even know how to, maybe it's genre bending. I don't know how to categorize it exactly, but I Care A Lot takes the critical issue of guardianship abuse, where swindlers trick judges into bilking senior citizens out of their belongings, savings, and independence, and puts it on blast. Imagine, if you will, that the con artists are skilled mercenary soldiers and that their mark has mob ties. That's the plot. It's quite a ride. And it's This is an actual real topic that needs to be addressed. My friend, Diane Diamond, has been writing about guardian abuse for several years, and you can read her investigative reporting at NewsHawk. And just this week, um, she's got an article in Northern Virginia Daily about- about Well, it's an age appropriate
1: topic for me, so I'm going to dig into it.
0: (laughs) I mean, we may be safer in California. I think it's Pennsylvania that has laws that are a little bit difficult in terms of whether or not you could be deemed by a doctor to be incapacitated and therefore someone shows up at your door and takes your house. It it just, it's terrifying. Lord. So, but great. I'm gonna keep an eye out for you. Please do. Yeah.
1: Or send me some tips on how to avoid being bilked.
0: I would say deadbolt. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) All right, are you ready to introduce our guest? I can't wait. Yeah, so here we go. Please welcome our guest, Denny Tedesco. And according to the internet, Denny is known for his work on the films, Immediate Family, The Wrecking Crew, and The Beastmaster. <laughs> Denny, Tedesco, Denny Tedesco grew up in Los Angeles and graduated from Loyola Marymount University. He started his film career as a set decorator in feature films such as Eating Raoul. He then traveled the world as a lighting technician and location producer for IMAX Films. From the shark-infested waters of Australia to the plains of Africa, he has filmed under the most challenging of conditions. He was sent as a location producer to cover the eruption of Mount Pinatubo and also to Kobe, Japan, to cover the catastrophic earthquake. Then he produced and directed the famed and award-winning documentary, The Wrecking Crew a film which brilliantly and reverently documents the great Los Angeles session musicians who worked with everyone from the Beach Boys and Elvis to Sinatra and the Monkees. Among these revered musicians was Denny's father, Tommy Tedesco. Denny's film was years in the making, and among your challenges, Denny, was securing the licensing for the multitude of hit songs essential to telling this story. And that may have... Did that help you... Uh, secure even more footage or follow these people even further? Because didn't it take you 19 years to release the film?
2: Yeah, it took 19 years. I mean, it started from uh, dad was passing away in 96 and started filming him. He had diagnosed in 96 and then started filming uh, my dad in 97, a little later. And we did a roundtable discussion. And then um, I thought, oh, this will be easy. I know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And dad passed away in 98 and then I just kept trying but everybody kept saying you'll never get it made and the reasoning was they said you'll never get an investor to invest all this money cuz you know it's only going to make this much but it's going to cause this much so basically I just had to keep going and dad passed away in 98 but I just never stopped and, and so- to, you know to go back to the Beastmaster, I have no idea what that is.
0: <laughs> uh, it's on the internet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, know, a lot of things. I know it was a job. I was a kid in uh, college, and I, I think I PA'd on uh, art department and Beastmaster. I, I'm going to find that my credit somewhere, but thank you.
0: Maybe you were the master or the beast. I'm not sure. I, wow. I hope so. One of the title roles. Yeah. So you took your film on the road, because I, I went to one of these events in LA,
2: yeah.
0: You know, because I was... Right. and I. I mean,
2: we saw I each got other.
0: To, yeah, we saw each other there. I got to see Hal Blaine, and that was exciting for me because I'm a drummer. So, uh, and you came to my film, the, yeah. the Cow Sales Family Band, when it was kind of making its sort of like festival tour. And the first thing you asked me was about licensing, and right. yeah, it's a bitch. And yeah. if you if it's songs in that time period they're not willing to let anything go just for the sake of oh it will it will help you publicize your new music it's like yeah, no it i bought work. this catalog and if you're yeah. going to play my tune you're going to pay me and it's yeah. just hardcore uh, that, that
1: that was the question i wanted to ask it seems like they would be able to skirt the rules a little bit if it's about the people that created the music you, you know what i mean it's use? not you're not you're not using it as sort of uh, peripheral promotion of your own movie. It's about, it's about the production of the music and they cut, you no slack with that either. Well, I, no. here's,
2: For me, I got to say, you know, when I kept going, you know, I can't, it was about 12 years f- until 2006. It was my wife who said, we just made the most expensive home movie ever. <laughs> had nothing to show for it. Literally. We had all this footage. And once we started, and I always described it as building a house. You have a, a beautiful property, but and you got the plans, you got the, you know, all the appliances, you got everything, but until you build it, you have no idea if you can even sell it. And my, the concern was, well, I had to make, for you know, all those years, I kept, you know, talking to the labels and the publishers. The publishers and the labels, I gotta be honest for me, were not a big problem in the end. They, I mean, I have 110, 110 songs in the film, another, I think, 25 songs or 20 songs in the X's DVD stuff. Not one song was declined, and that's huge, oh, yeah. huge. Now, I say they weren't the problem because it was really about economics. They got behind it after a while. Listen, it, I'm hoping that the next one they'll be just as, you know, great about it too. But I mean, it is a money maker for everybody. You know, they need to make money, and the person that's like you know, we're dealing with on the other end of the labels. Well, they got to make money for their job, so it's kind of like, mm, you know, but fair use is not something you want to go down to either. That's not something that we play around with.
0: You don't um, want to do fair use, Fritz, because that means that it the the film isn't really yours, and that you could never make money off the film. It's like, it it isn't that how the law works, Denny.
2: Well, I would what my when I went to uh, the lawyer about it, it is actually when. Phil Spector got, you know, when he went to trial and the problem we had is like, okay, Phil is no longer part of this now. What do we do? The music's there. I need to get permission. Um, I thought, well, if they're not going to license it or they're not going to ever play ball with us, what if we do fair use? And I went to the lawyer and he said, listen, you could do fair use if you cut it this way. We cut it that way. He says, but don't get into fair use if you want to have have a fight. You've got you could do one fight, two fights, but. Don't forget, the guy that owns that song might own another 20. He's not going to eat. It's up to him if he wants to license it to us.
1: And, and explain so, fair use. It's, you can use a limited amount, like something less than 30 seconds be, or less than 15 it seconds. It has
2: to be pretty specific to like a great example, like in the I could have used fair use would have been in um, where Taste of Honey was being shown in the movie where Hal in, or Herb Alpert's talking about how the drum beat comes in. And then how you know they worked with it in the studio. If you use so just a few of those bars and get across what you're saying, yeah, you could do that. To it yeah.
0: so it has to specifically illustrate the point you're making. Oh. And yeah. it's it's all it's all the law. It's all you need a lot of lawyers. And then when your film is finished, you have to be able to indemnify everything. You have to yeah. be able to say that if this airs somewhere, someone's not coming out of the woodwork to come after you. So you have to dot a lot of I's and cross a lot of Ts and
2: I mean, did you work with a rights expert, Denny? Uh, somewhat, but you know, after I only the only one I ended up you mean talking about getting the rights for the music?
0: Just to make sure that you had done it properly.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did, and we make sure we you know, for people that kept coming, I'm going, Denny, these are your contracts, Denny. What are you doing? (laughs) It's like, you know, at that point it was like 18 years, and I had you know contracts here, contracts here, but it came together. The only time I use actually use fair use is at the beginning of the movie when they're um, talking about my dad's death on CNN, MTV, and Jerry Dunphy. You know, remember Jerry Dunphy?
0: Yes. And
2: um, that was the only time I had to use fair use because they, you know, the company that was involved wanted to charge me twenty thousand dollars. Well, they used fair use to show that footage. So I was like, ah, I don't think so. I, but
1: I, I, Now, I could be wrong about this, and I don't want to get in the weeds We'll bore people, but isn't there a different set of specifications if it's broadcast, if that film has already been broadcast or something's already shown up on network I television? Know. Anyway, I, I want to say something. Over and above all the hassle that you had and w- what it represents in the music industry and the revelation of this movie is the fact that nobody, including... I was a DJ for 15 years. Wheezy started a career in the music business. I think zero people knew that many of the greatest artists with hits in the 60s and 70s did not play on their own records, which is the revelation of the music. But even bigger than that, this is a beautiful tribute to your father. And the gift uh, 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 that you gave him was to do this before he passed away, which which must have been very, in one way, bittersweet, but satisfying to you to to sort of shepherd this project.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when I went to him, I always wanted to do this movie and it was like, okay, you know, it's like until you really do it and start, you can all, we could always talk about it. It's like that screenplay. We're always doing that screenplay, but we never sit down to do it. So when he was diagnosed, it's like, and they said 11 months, I, okay, I got to jump on this. Um, wow. So, so I, he had
1: been diagnosed before you even started shooting.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, Holy that was cow. the impetus. Yeah. So that's why, so when I put him at the round table, you know, that's only a few months into his uh, he hadn't started chemo. I don't think yet. Um, Cause he was still fresh and, you know, vibrant. And when I went to go do everybody single on each one of the, you know, the four people, I went to go see Carol Kane, Carol Kane, Carol Kay interviewed her and interviewed Hal at home and interviewed Plaza at home. When I got to my father, it was kind of, I don't wanna say too late, but that life in him was gone. And it wasn't the same because he had been going through chemo and he was just tired. And I just didn't wanna put that in the movie. But that's why I have all that other footage of him doing his seminars and all the other stuff.
1: But he was, your father was like a stand-up comedian. He was (laughs) so funny. And his commentary around the table, unless you told me that, I would never suspect that he was in the throes of cancer. Because he was hysterical with his little anecdotes. And those clips you used from his uh, seminars, he was like a stand-up performance. They were really entertaining. And he won the
0: gong show. Come on now.
2: Come on. He won the gong show. Yeah, I mean, he was—he, you know, we called—he was a, such a ballbuster. I mean, you couldn't get anything <laughs> past him, especially at home. If you got something past him at home, you—you know—you took the date now, and so you could remember to tell him. <laughs> I mean, he was—he uh, was known for his kindness and his—you know, in, in the studios. I mean, he helped so many other players, you know, throughout his career, and helped all of anybody. He could help he would help him. You know, but he was funny.
0: Yeah. And you really bring his personality across in yeah. the film. Mm-hmm. Well, it comes I,
2: I, I didn't have to do anything. Honest to God, people say, I wish I'd known your dad. I said, if you watch the film, that's him.
0: Yeah. And his talent, yeah. which was uh, you know, un, unmatched. And so I want to talk a little bit about the the studio musicians and how they kind of like toiled in darkness to a certain extent where it was just this kind of era where where all of this great music was being cranked out we were all listening to the same music we all had the same dial on our the pop station or rock top 40 station in our town we were all focused in the same direction and these guys were cranking out all of this stuff day and night and they and their names didn't appear on the back if it was a band if it was Dean Martin or the Letterman it, their name was on the back but if it was a rock and roll band, it was like, no, we have to suspend this disbelief. And it wasn't until the monkeys that it was such a scandal that the monkeys didn't play, nobody played, but the monkeys got busted, maybe because they said it out loud. Cause they were frustrated. They were such big stars and they weren't permitted to play on their own records.
2: Is that how yeah. you remember it? Well, I mean, you know, it's funny cause as growing up, it never seemed different, you know, and I don't think my father ever thought of it as a big scandal. Because he just went to work. Yeah, you know it wasn't like they were hiding. you know, close the door. No one. We, you know, they didn't care. They just went to job to job to job. Um, I think part of it was in the early days they were all singles, so there was never going to be an issue of where do we put their names. But it was, you know, when it got to LPs, and like you said, like look like Pet Sounds. I don't know. I don't think that was ever listed. They never wanted to list those guys on there. You know, um, there's a lot of association. But you know, in the end, the, the guy. You know, someone said, "Did you feel like you should have my, to my father? Did you feel you should have been paid more money for the you know the contributions you guys did?" And my father said, "Absolutely not." He goes, "I went to work." He said, "I made hundreds of hits, but we made thousands of bombs." I never gave anybody their twenty five dollars back.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, what I mean that's just part of you know. A job. They they were in a very mi- small minority of musicians that were making a great living. You don't usually use you hear that, but that's how it was.
1: Hey, I think before we go on, Danny, we honestly ought to describe uh, who the Wrecking Crew was and how they sure. got their name, just for people who yeah, aren't as familiar with it
2: as we are. Well, the Wrecking Crew was a time and a place, really, because Hal Blaine, the great drummer of God, so many hits, probably one of the all-time drummers. He came up with the name, in a sense, talking about how the old guys said they're going to wreck the business playing this rock and roll stuff. This is in the early 60s. So he was telling that much later in the 80s and 90s. And I think that's how the name was created. The guys in the early 60s, my father, Hal Blaine, uh, Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, Joe Osborne, Carol Kay, and all these other guitar players and stuff they were doing all this rock and roll stuff because they were the younger guys. They were more not established um, session players. Some of them, you know, they didn't have the legitimacy as maybe the Barney Kessels or the others that were doing the major capital dates, you know, with Billy holiday or with early Frank stuff or movie calls. So when these guys get a call and they're, Say hey, we got a you know a demo date at uh, Gold Star with so and so. It could be Phil Spector. They said well, yeah, we'll take it because it could it was a chance to break into a, a scene. You know, like all of us were always looking to find that our gig. Well, how do we get in? We're gonna get in this way.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: once they established themselves as the Wall of Sound, and then they were Brian's guys, and then they everybody was using them. It was then it became Union. They they were boom they were locked in and
0: in and a lot of they, cases they, they didn't even like the music they were playing
2: oh no yeah exactly listen it's funny because as much as we say the old guys you know they hated the music and this and that if you ask my father he would say eh, you know i, I he, he he didn't like a lot of music you know he loved yeah. his jazz he loved his acoustic guitar he loved harmonies he loved some he loved great players but, you know, that's a difference. It wasn't about rock and roll or anything. It was he loved players. About so the old he, school
1: guys, there's a funny story in there. I can't remember who tells it. It might be your dad where he's talking about replacing the old, old garb. Those guys that show up to a session in suits and ties and yeah. they didn't smoke in the studio. He said, what the hell yeah. is that? Yeah. It was it was a funny
2: anecdote. Is it? Yeah. I mean, it was a different, you know, these guys come in with, you know, not wearing the ties, you know. And they're just, And they go, so they go to nine o'clock, let's say at Universal or Capitol, nine to 12. They, they were three hour dates in those days. Well, there still are. The union would book them for three hours. You could go three hours. You could do three or four songs legally, meaning they didn't want you doing a whole album in three hours, which they could if they wanted to, because that would, you know, it's like making a car. Don't go too fast. So, <laughs> so they did it. And then they would get another call. They would go to one o'clock. So not one o'clock, maybe at gold star, maybe another date at RCA. So they could be doing three or four dates throughout the day. And the difference is like in the early days, the reason they were in so demand studio time was expensive, you know, rock and roll. You realize in 1960s, it, it's, it's an, in its infancy, you know, what 55, it was, we kind of hearing the name, you know, so there's not, it's like, almost like we were talking about rap earlier. Mm-hmm. You know the beginning of rap. Well, at a certain point, you know now it's you know that's the beginnings. So it's not and, just that
0: the studio time was expensive. It's the studio time was also um, a finite commodity, and you didn't have anything on your desk that would reproduce the sound of a trumpet. You had to have a yeah. man with a trumpet. Yeah, well,
2: that's exactly, yeah. and that was the next thing is what Glenn Campbell said. Don't so forget, we're dealing with one track, maybe you know, in his mono, So you got 10 guys, 10 people in there or maybe more or less, but they're all playing together. We're not separating it, we're not doing overdubs. So you got to nail it. Boom, boom, boom. And Glenn said it was like playing with Michael Jordan in that room. He said, but every person in the room was Michael Jordan. So if you had a three minute song and you got to two and a half minutes and someone kind of blows it or it's not right, they start all over. They don't do pickups. They can't, you know,
0: can't punch too much of a
2: hassle Cut tape at that point there yeah so that's what they would do wow and that's where because the band were so young they couldn't do that that quickly what are you gonna say fritz
1: i was just gonna say that my attraction to the wrecking crew came from glenn campbell i opened for him in palm springs one of the last dates he did at sun city down in indio And he was just, he had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He could still, this was one of the mysteries of Alzheimer's to me. You know, if you asked him a sentence, he would hesitate searching for a thought to put into words. But on stage, he did two hours of hits impeccably. All these Jimmy Webb songs, not a glitch in his music, but it was conversation that was hard. And his wife... Uh, was running the show and a couple of his sons were, were playing in the band and, and we were backstage between shows and she told me, she said, "If I, I was talking about session players and how they had to be fast and good and she said, you have to watch The Wrecking Crew. It's not out yet, but it's really great. And Glenn was the key guitar player in that. And then, and tell me if this is true. Is it true that he didn't read music? Somebody would have to explain what they wanted and he would riff?
2: Yeah. He couldn't read a note. My dad said he was the greatest, for him, the greatest rock and roll player at of, of the time with him. Wow. You know, give it to Glenn. He'll play the shit out of it. I mean, he was so good. And he said, but they had. he had ears of an elephant. You know, he could do, you know, probably chord signatures and all that, but he couldn't read the notes. And so if it was something that was a little complicated or something questionable, he would turn to my father or Bill Pittman or one of the guys, say, hey, what did it? And they said, and, you know, give him a little, just give him enough to go. Yeah, that's it, and boom, he's gone. He was just wicked, such a good player.
0: And maybe what he played
2: you know, was. was
0: a, I was just going to say that you know, ahead, because he, if he wasn't reading the notes off of a page, maybe what he played was more incredible than what someone, someone could have.
2: Yeah, I mean, charted. He, you know the, you know he's just playing by ear. Yeah. And, you know, there's the, a the great story. Of when he they working on with a, um, I think it was um, Strangers in the Night, Glenn and my dad and four of them four guitar players there, and I think Glenn once Glenn got the part down, he memorized it. You know, it's in his head. Mm-hmm. You know, so they do anything more than once, and um, and, and uh, Sinatra said to uh, Don Costa, "Well, who's that blah 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 guitar player looking at me? I can't even say the word." <laughs> 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 and Inkling uh, goes, he told me that story. It was like so funny because he just had nothing to do but stare at Frank at that point.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> probably went away. Oh my gosh, because he wasn't looking at the chart. Oh, yeah. that's so funny. So, did you ever go with your dad, Denny?
2: The earliest date I remember as a kid was uh, Green Acres. And the only wow. reason was it was one of the. And the only reason I remember that is because we were going on vacation or something and we all went together so we could leave after that date. It was like looking at his, his books. Now his workbooks, it was like a Monday at two o'clock every time or whatever it was every Monday. So I remember so well because I remember I was like five or six and I remember the Vic Mizzy, the great conductor, composer, just doing this you know, <laughs> for a little kid. That was the first thing I've never seen anything like it. But we never went. I mean, Dad always, and I asked my mom. I said, "Mom, did, did you ever go to the Peggy Lee sessions or any of that stuff?" She had gone to the Sinatra sessions, Strangers of Night, because Sinatra wanted people. But she goes, "No, Dad always said a plumber doesn't take his wife to work." You know, <laughs>
0: I love and that. It, it,
2: and it, you know, it's it's like you for you know, like comedians, you go to work. It's not about yeah, you're on a stage, you're doing your thing. It's the hang afterwards that it's all about the next thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always in, you know, we're all that, you know. You can't if just- there are people in the audience that
1: I know, it's very intimidating to me. I never enjoyed that.
2: <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I'm not a big fan of that. Do you hey, know- I want to talk. Go ahead, Weezy, please.
0: I just have a, a, a little question here. Do you know if, you know, since they were just so good at laying down tracks and making the record sound amazing, do you know if anyone ever stepped in to sing for a famous vocalist?
2: No. You know, that's a good question. I mean, not really. I mean, um, I mean, Gary Lewis had someone to track with him. You know, mm-hmm. he had Ron Like Hickson. a shadow track. Yeah, and he followed Ron. Mm-hmm. But uh in the end it's still him mixed in there. Yeah. I don't think yeah, that's an interesting I've never heard of that. I mean, it's well, the mamas and papas were there to do
1: background vocals, weren't they? And then somebody went down the hall and discovered they could do their own record. Wasn't that the story? Well, the
2: mamas and papas were background vocal for um, Barry McGuire. Mm -hmm. So when he was doing a demo of, of, he was doing a session actually doing um, California Dreaming. So, mamas and papas, who John, you know, John Phillips wrote the song, they were doing the background for that. And then John said to uh, Barry, he said, hey, listen, I really want to hold this song for us, if that's okay. He said, absolutely, no problem. So they went, so he told, they went to Lou Adler and, and talked about it. He said, well, let's hear you sing it, you know, basically brought him to the side. He said, all right, we'll do your version of it. And if you strip down the tracks where you have a stereo system that can hear the beginning of that, you'll hear Barry McGuire's voice, you know, at the beginning. Wow. And, he, and Barry said it was, you know, he said it's still there somewhere. They didn't strip it all the way. But that's how that all started. You know, they were all hanging out. That's Barry and and Mama, Cass. The folk scene
1: at that time. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I yeah. want to talk about Gold Star Records, because yeah. every musician talks about the mystical quality of a studio and a certain sound and a certain... A spiritual magic in there And that was one of those places that had it I mean, Pet Sounds was recorded in there Uh, One of the seminal rock and roll records As a matter of fact, it's fairly common knowledge That the Beatles did Sgt. Pepper As a way to try to answer creatively The the incredible accomplishment of Pet Sounds But Phil Spector did the wall of sound in there With like four piano players Four guitar players, four bass players And now it's in a mini mall yeah, the gold star right—that drives me nuts that we don't yeah. have any foresight to protect historic places like
2: that. Well, it's funny because I agree with you. It's almost like what the Wrecking Crew is about—it comes and goes.
0: It's a nail salon with amazing acoustics, though. Chris.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, Denny. Well, you know, in the end, though, the, it ended up burn burning down. Oh, that. oh no! That was, yeah, so there wasn't much there afterwards. And, you know, there was Dave Gold and Stan Ross, who were the owners, and they created that. And Dave Gold created the um, uh, echo chamber. I'll have to send you a picture. There's a great picture of uh, Barry Gibb. I think it's Barry Gibb in the echo chamber.
0: Oh, cool.
2: You know, I think it was the last day they closed.
0: Wow.
1: Wow. That was the big thing for Phil Spector, right, was that echo chamber and for Brian Wilson as well that magical echo chamber they had there. But I wanted
0: to ask you uh, uh, real quick, Denny, if, um, you know, just filmmaker to filmmaker, because I know that's a challenge to make a film that everyone is happy to celebrate who's in the film. And you had a larger cast than I did. So what did you run up against in terms of like screening it and having
2: people maybe not comfortable? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, but you had family. (laughs) I don't know about that. I mean, I can't imagine doing that. Um, Here's the thing is when I started it, it was about the group all together. And when we cut 20 minutes, a director and editor at Grady Cooper said, why are you guys cutting it like this? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you're cutting something that I can cut or any one of us editors can cut. He says, you're not going upon, you're not going at it in a personal way. And Meaning like, we don't know who you are. We don't know what this is about. It's all about these guys. Why are you staying away from it? And my reason was, it was my ego keeping me away. You know, I didn't want to be this son making the film about his father and these guys. I wanted to be a director, you know. And finally, I started making those changes, changed everything. It allowed me to actually not worry about what so-and-so says or why so-and-so is not in the movie listen any one of these people and all these documentaries can have their own single documentary so that was a hard part mm-hmm. you know and when I got to 2006 and Claire Scanlon who was editing the film she goes you got to stop interviewing people and she goes I can't put everybody in I said I know but that's why God gave us DVDs I said, he wants us to, you know, I had to come up with the reason to keep going. I knew there would be outtakes. In the end, we had six hours of bonus. But I felt like once it was a story about my father and his extended family, that allowed some leeway.
0: That's the heartstring.
2: It it did. And, you know, listen, all the musicians, I've got nothing but compliments. And, you know, even, unfortunately, Carol Kay, who... Loved the film at the beginning, and then had a falling out with Hal later. Then it became an issue, but nothing changed between the two ties. But you know, they saw it, it was the first time. Listen, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky I did that film. You can't do that film now. Everybody's gone. It's God a great document. Away. It's a great historical document. I'm telling you.
1: Yeah. Is I don't Carol Kay the only female that was in the wrecking yeah. crew? Yeah. I mean, uh, it was said in the movie that females were part of bands like jazz ensembles. There were one, jazz ensembles that were sure. all women, but there were. She was the only session female musician
2: in a rhythm section. Yeah, there was always like you know string players and wow. harpists and stuff like that. But no, yeah, she was the only one doing it. I mean, that's she was so- saying,
0: you know, she was saying, you know, I just wanted to be one of the guys. And mm-hmm. you know, your movie came out long before Me Too, and. You know, oh she, God. she, she kind of says, <laughs> look, they all
2: would have gone to prison by now. <laughs> she,
0: she basically says, this is what I did and I didn't mind it. And that's just what you do to be included. And I, I don't know if that would still fly today. I, Cause I just watched the film again yesterday yeah. so that I would have it fresh in my mind for today's conversation. But yeah, I was thinking about that when she, when she said that, like how much do women have to laugh at and go along with just because they want to be a part of the team?
2: Yeah. You know, I, it's funny because they jokingly say that. And even then, you you know, she must say she put up with a lot of crap. I'm, I'm sure know she did. But yeah, anybody yeah. that was in that group took a lot of ribbing. They ribbed each other. You know, dad was the fat guy, you know, they you know, they you know, everybody was, you know, put up with a lot of shit. But at the same time, they didn't. She and I always say this as a compliment to Carol. She was not there as someone's girlfriend or someone that was Mm-mm. on the fringes. She was there because she was needed. She was a needed guitar player or a needed bass player. Mm-hmm. So, uh, being a bass player, as you know, it's, it's forget it. If you don't have a good bass player and drummer, you, you're done. You take it, you know, might as well start all over.
0: That has to be locked in. It's fundamental. Yeah. My favorite scene in the movie, and I'm sure everyone says this to you, but my favorite scene is, and I don't know the name of the bass player, but he's playing the way that you edited so many portions of your, of your film, Denny, are just so beautiful. And this is one of those. He's playing the bass line to let the sunshine in, the let yep. the sunshine in portion of that song.
2: Realize and me. then
0: you kind of pull up. He must have been listening to it on, in his headphones yeah, yeah. and he's playing along. And then you pull up the full mix and pull back down. It's just beautiful.
2: It's funny because that was one of part of that working in the edit. Someone said, "Well, you need more. You need them to play these guys." Well, none of them are gonna. You know, they're not playing. I can't get them to play. But then I thought, wait a minute, put them in the studio the way they heard it themselves. That made sense, and that was the way to get it across. And that's the greatest thing is, is I love about doing that is it allows us to, as listeners, I always hear a guitar lick because that's what I'm brought up with. Or a bass, you know, I can hear certain instruments. I can't tell you a lyric to help me, you know, I can't <laughs> hear lyrics, it doesn't yeah. go ahead. But that's why it's so cool that my wife will drive, I'll drive her crazy. you know look around, do you hear that in the restaurant? You know, it's that such and such song. It's a lick I hear, you know, that run of my dad's or someone else's, you know. Will you hear that, your that was dad? My, will you, know you know
0: it's your dad, even if you're not, you don't know it's your dad, but you know it's it, your dad?
2: If it's acoustic. <laughs> if I if, only if it's if, if it's something new that I've never heard and it's acoustic, I'll know it's him. Because mm-hmm. yeah, that's that thing.
1: I love that part of the movie too. The, the Sax player starts doing the Pink Panther yeah. routine. And I thought, oh my god, that's one of the greatest opening oh my- things. And uh and then your dad doing the bonanza theme. <laughs> I thought, wow. And I guess your dad. Uh, that's how he did this sessions with Ricky Nelson. Cause he was playing music on the, uh, Ozzie and Harriet show. Am I yeah. right with that?
2: That was one of his first gigs because it was, uh, he was substituting for Bob Bain. Who was at the, who really was the guy that helped him. He was like 10 years older than dad. And that was the first time he heard the term rock and roll. And they did, um, um, oh my God, him and Burton did, um, Oh, it's CM Blanken old age. That one song, um, it's a Fools rip. Rush In. What's that?
0: Fools Rush In.
2: Yeah, very good. Good job, Weezy. Wow, I don't know. I that. just
0: watched the movie last night, so oh. I just, <laughs> it's the top, the top of my mind,
2: yeah. But that was something that they came, It it's funny because Burton said, it was your dad that they couldn't get it going. And my dad just started doing the shuffle or something in the rhythm. And that's when they kicked in and they figured it out. It's all those things that they all do to, you know, Work with each other.
0: Yeah, collaborative thinking. Yeah. But I want to talk really quick and, and, and segue into the immediate family because your film kind of, it, it almost kind of demands a sequel because at it, it, the tail end of your film, yeah, right. this is this is being phased out and the singer songwriter era is, is being ushered in. And you had these guys that were playing with James Taylor and uh, Carol King and Jackson Brown. You had these guys that also toured with them. And that made them more more of a, a prominent figure yeah. in the music, and and with the touring came the videos that we bought, the concert yeah. videos that we bought, and them appearing on Johnny Carson. So you <laughs> knew who Russ Kunkel was, you knew yeah. who Waddy was, you recognized these guys. And so, do you think that's the reason that they were able to sustain their careers
2: Absolutely. for for so
0: many decades?
2: Absolutely. So what happens at the end? It's funny because this they. These, uh, the producers produced the producers approached me in 2019 and said, "Would you be interested in a, a documentary about this section, which was uh, the guys like Leland Russ and um, and Danny in the 70s?" I said, "They have a band called the Media Family." I said, "Okay, that starts to make sense now because everybody had ideas after I finished. You should make this. You should, yeah. You know what? Mm-hmm. I was shell shocked." I mean, I was like, guys, you know, unless someone is gonna actually put money down, I was I couldn't do it again, you know. The, it was hard making that film. I, I did understand wrong. You know, I went yeah. bankrupt in the end, but I came back. But yeah. it was everything you're not supposed to do, I did wrong. I did it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't put your credit cards out. So when they came to me and said, We got this idea for a film, it's like, okay, <laughs> keep going. Don't, and I'm shaking, but keep going. <laughs> and, um, and they said, you know, they told me what it was. And I said, okay, now well, that I can grab onto. Because any studio player, I can, anybody could have their own film about. There's so many of the Picaro family, you know, Toto and all those guys. And Abel Boy, there's so many. But these guys, at the end of my film, Lou Adler says, When he brought Carol King in to do tapestry, she brought James Taylor as well as Danny Coachmar in. I went, yeah, that's right. So now I had a jumping off point. And like you said, their careers are totally different than my dad's because dad would never leave the studio. You better, you got to pay these guys a lot of money to go on the road at this point. And, other guys did leave at some point, sooner or later. Hal took went on with John Denver for many years, and other guys left town as well. Dad was fortunate; he he was because of his reading capability. He went right into film and TV, mm-hmm. so that was another career for him that you know went way beyond his hopes. But this th- th- this is a this is like a perfectly
1: symmetrical move, because these guys played. On all this music, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Don Henley, Carol King, James Taylor.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but they got tight for another reason. Y- y- your, the wrecking crew got tight because they played for 20 hours a day in the studio for 10 years. These guys went out on the road and got tight. So they were this unit uh, just practicing in a different area. Absolutely. And,
2: uh, and, and the friendships are stronger. Don't forget, after 12 hours, 8 hours, or don't forget, my dad's going in and out of these – sessions are only three hours long. So yeah. Dak could go to one session for three hours and be with Hal Blaine and the next session he could be with, with Earl Palmer, you know, vice, whatever they're doing. But when Danny and Leland come around, they're doing these projects for a few weeks at a time. They're really spending time and creating, not being rushed with the time on the clock. They're doing something that would never have been thought about 10 years before. Because they, they may have their
0: own studio in, in a garage and they mm-hmm. may be able to yep. take all day yep. or Woodstock yeah. or,
2: or- So they become, they can become tight as a family. And that's where immediate family comes yeah. from.
0: So we're going to play a, a little clip from your sizzle, uh, Fritz, if it's okay right now, Thomas-
2: Absolutely. And Jimmy Iveen goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to do it like, you know, this. I will just play it and it, it just worked. thing that they're known for doing or a thing that you hope they might be, they're going to unlock the song for you.
1: Cooch can play you anything from uh, the 40s
2: to the future, and he can do it so it doesn't sound like anybody did it before. Uh, it sounds like cooch. Well, I, I think that that Danny was more instrumental than Carol, emerging as a performing artist.
0: I want to be part of a band. I want to be a band with with Danny. Mm-hmm.
2: 1971. And here we are, rocking the house now. Awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So where are we uh, on this project, Denny?
2: Very close to finishing. We only have maybe One or two more days of shooting, and we're in post. So I'm just, like, so thrilled. Uh, If COVID didn't hit, I mean, when COVID hit, thank God, I had already gotten, you know, Carol King, Linda Ronstead, James Taylor, Jackson Brown. I got uh, uh, Phil Collins, all of those guys out of the way. Um, Because that would be really difficult to do right now with COVID. Um, Really difficult. So thank God that's all. And we've just been slowly going back, getting the interviews with the guys and a few more here and there, but we're done. You know, I don't want to say done. I'm sure there'll be something to do, but it's really about post now.
1: Was it similar to the other one where you had a round table and
2: everybody got- Oh, that's funny. That's very funny, Fritz. Whoa, good cue, Fritz. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's the only thing that we got left because we're doing the the round table and that's exactly what we've been waiting until everybody got vaccinated to do that. So yeah well, that's you've got the only two days we got left,
0: oh uh, yeah, luckily, you've got the age group that's a that's eligible for vaccinations, <laughs> yeah,
1: and I bet there's some insane anecdotes that are going to come out in this movie, just being on the road for fifty years,
2: oh my god, I mean that's the hard part again. It's like, oh, cutting the babies out, you know you are mm-hmm. i mean the stories are hilarious sometimes, you know, Linda Ronstedt well, just blew my mind, I mean even the poor lady you know she's suffering with the parkinsons and i know what that's like cuz i saw my mom with it it was she was so funny and when she starts laughing it's infectious cuz she's <laughs> laughing at her, her own self sometimes her, you know <laughs> her own story her her documentary is one of the best
1: oh, i've ever seen beautiful. she you she just her she's just a soulful Lovely human being, and it comes out in everything she says in that movie. I just love that film.
2: I know, me too. I mean, it was so special, and we got to interview her like a couple weeks afterwards. We were, and that says so much about these guys because don't forget when they when I got approached with it, they said Carol King can do an interview in three weeks. I went, like, oh my god, really? I was like, research. I'm trying to still think about what the film is. And so it was like boom, 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 boom. Then Carol. Then it was Linda Ronstead the following week. So I was like, it said so much about the love they have for yeah. these players. There was no doubt that Jackson or James or any one of those artists would ever decline. It was just instant. So when, is the
0: focus is the is the focus then the the threat of family?
2: Uh, yeah, I, that's what I'm focusing. I just. There's, you know, you listen, Music's music. It's great and all that, but there's more to life than just being a great hit. You know what makes the great hit? There, we all have our insecurities. You know, the biggest insecurity, you know, I think uh, all musicians have is, is this my last job? All of us have that. Am I gonna, you know? And I think that comes out. You know, these guys have survived this COVID thing really well. Even though they love playing live, they've really actually I compliment them on still still, you know, doing their Zoom calls and doing they put out a couple of videos by themselves.
1: Yeah. Matter of fact, Cruel Twist, which is great and it's easily found online, was done with individual recordings from everybody's home and then mixed. And it's really great. I mean,
2: you know, I you know, they're amazing.
0: Yeah, but the boomer learning curve was pretty steep. And
2: <laughs> a, like a round of applause for
0: boomers yeah. for getting on oh, Zoom. Yeah. And and you know, and, and Lee Leland is now a, a YouTube star. You know, that's something oh he figured God. out.
2: Leland, <laughs> <the bomb. laughs> one of the coolest people I've ever met Absolutely. I went and shot him the other day with his Roadster.
0: Oh yeah? Oh mm-hmm. my
2: God. He's the, his house is a museum of mm-hmm. itch and just vintage and he is this vintage in his own way yeah, <laughs> yeah let's talk true. about who these
1: guys are. so you have Lee Squire he's been a guest on our show who yeah. has the record apparently for over 2,000 recording sessions Russ Conkle's a drummer Waddy Wachtel's guitar and then Danny and when you hear Danny play guitar you hear those licks he co-wrote uh, Dirty Laundry with Don yeah. Henley in New York but you can hear that it's, it's the same sound it's so yeah. cool
2: yeah. And then you got the kid, I want to say Steve Pistel, the fifth guy in that group. Yeah. Who I say is the kid. I think he's 63. You know, <laughs> so he's probably keeping them in line. <laughs> but no, I, these guys, I'm really looking forward to this coming out and probably next, beginning of next year. Theatrical you know, release? It, are you going to stream it or how's it going to come? You know what's so weird? What do we, we don't know what that means anymore? Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean it's it, weird it, there's thing. so if many you,
0: more. There's so many more available venues for you or opportunities yeah. for you than when you made The Wrecking Crew, correct?
2: Well, The Wrecking Crew, the, yes, absolutely. The Wrecking Crew, if it, it came out the same film 10 years before, it would never have the legs. It would never have the audience because when it came out, Netflix was out. Um, and yeah. and the, the respect for music docs came back. You know, there was that point, no one would want to talk to you about a music doc. That's the worst thing you could say. And then, you know, we did over hundred theaters with Wrecking Crew when it came out. Then we went to Netflix and, and then, you know, DVDs. And, and yeah, now it's going to be interesting. Do we do theaters? I, I do miss the theater, you know.
0: I think people are going to be very eager to go back to the theater. And, I think so. You know, you may be, you may be surprised or you may, you may get an offer from Amazon Prime, like come right out of the box just because they've heard about this and they want it.
2: Uh, they're listening to this show right so let's, well,
0: make, <laughs> let's make sure they are yeah. huge fans you know the,
2: gen, the next fans. generation
1: uh, studio 3.0 will be you doing all the great session players of punk
2: yeah know i want to do one with just a uh, a triangle and that's all he does <laughs> okay <laughs> the best of him yeah it is no more I don't, the licensing oh, No. the
0: so um, how was it different since you're almost done? I think you can do, we can compare oranges to apples. Well, yeah. how was the journey different or easier or possibly more difficult?
2: Well, just having financing meant I could call some, we could go get a crew and go film someone.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, when I, when I, even though I had the film made in 2008 and had all those awards in 2009, all the awards with the festivals, we had like a dozen awards, sold out crowds, but no one would pick us up. You know, it wasn't until I raised another half a million dollars. And you remember when we were doing Louis, we were trying to figure out how I was doing up everything but a bake sale. Yeah, I would find go into a town and I would find sponsors who would put I would put their name up on the screen, and say, "Hey, the jewelry store or the wow. dog groomer." You know, they get here. Here's you know, you give me two hundred dollars, you get ten tickets, and I kept this going, and I kept. And then we finally raised that money. It no, was, it's
0: quite a, a hero's journey that you got that film made. Yeah.
2: I mean, it was a necessity. I had, I, mean, I was stuck. If the film had done horrible in 08, you know, like bad reviews, or it was lukewarm or nothing, I would have been that right, I move on. But it was the opposite. I had crossed a line that I couldn't turn back. And that's where we had to keep going because that was the only way it was ever going to come out is, and I didn't want that on my, literally, I seriously did not want that on my tombstone or, I didn't want to go oh yeah it's another project in my life that i didn't finish or could have done was that the
1: first uh, film you'd ever directed
2: yeah yeah it's you know but if you take 19 years fritz it's okay
0: yeah so (laughs) denny you're on a tighter
2: schedule when you work for a big company
0: what is what do the guys in the immediate family say to you a about your film and B about the players depicted in your film and what they meant to them
2: oh well i mean Lee was the only one that played with all the guys in my film, you know, Lee played with, because Leland was different than the other guys, Russ. And Danny, they had a certain and Wadi, they were, and Wadi played with some of the guys.
0: But were they influenced by them even? Well,
2: influenced, Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a different, it was a different world because they were doing these guys are really rock and roll,
0: but they grew up on these songs.
2: I know, I know, no, I, th- I think, yeah, I think, you know, they're, blo- I think they're always blown away when they find out that was them, you know, even then they're still learning of what was, on. Um, but, you know, they set a standard in the studios, the guys in the sixties, meaning how you presented the business and how, you know, things that, you know, and I just, it's, it's just, musicians are musicians. That's what I love about all around the world. There's a respect for each other hmm
0: Well, there's one thing that we need to talk about, and you you sent me to it, and I'm still a little puzzled, although I'm highly amused. So this is a project <laughs> that you're working on with Dana Gould called Dr. Doctor... I don't even know how to pronounce it. Dr. Z. Okay, Dr. Z. Yeah. So imagine, Fritz, that Dr. Z from Planet of the Apes has a talk show in the early 70s, I'm guessing, from the <laughs> yeah, topical say, references. Yeah I, would,
2: yeah, I would say the 70s. Yeah. It's like, so, kind of like Dick Cavett meets uh, it's nothing
0: meets anything it's just it's its its own creature i don't know what kind of gathering inspired this this mind meld of a concept but yeah
2: yeah
0: it's genius and it is let's should we play a little of it yeah go for it all right
1: how about rusty steel and the steel wheels how about that band (laughs) over there thank you you know pringles the potato chip pringles i do in the can Do you think if he just showed the guy who invented Pringles just an open bag
2: of potato chips, would he look inside like, what in the god's name happened?
1: (laughs) Anyway, speaking of crime scenes, we have from Criminal Minds tonight, Paget Brewster is with us. She's a human woman actress, and
0: she's here tonight. (laughs) So uh, listen to Rusty Steele and the Steel Wheels. Don't go
2: away. You're hanging with Dr. Z. Don't let go.
0: So that's what happens, and then he sit. The desk is somehow on a television, and not actually. So anyway, Danny, please explain.
2: Well, that was something that uh, Dana Gould has this amazing fascination with uh, *Planet of the Apes*, and so I saw him do it in uh, at the USC. At the they had the *Planet of the Apes* weekend, you know, and they had all the you know the makeup guys and all this, and all of a sudden they bring out Dana as Dr. Zayas. And went and they did a, basically a talk you know a panel and i went oh my god this <laughs> is hilarious and you know you know Fred says like he is he's a great he's writer a, he's a great writer amazingly quick mm-hmm. so so he interviews uh steven weber on one of the shows bobcat goldthwaite Patton oswald oh my god Jorge, um uh, hank azaria and wow uh, Tim Meadows. And so we did this in a weekend and we had to do it like what you're doing now. You've done it better than we did. <laughs> no,
0: we're not yeah, in eight you know, suits. They win.
2: Yeah. Well, it, it was just, it's so fun. Again, musicians and comedians, they're like, that's what's so great. Mm-hmm. You know, when you ask Fritz about the round table, the reason I did the round table and, and wrecking crew was basically I based it on Broadway, Danny Rose in yeah. the movie when they're all talking about Woody Allen in the, in the movie. I grew up on people banter, banter, yes. banter, banter. Yes. Well, your dad yes. was masterful at that, right? And they would tease each other. They come back and you know always wound up on each other. Mm-hmm. And I never saw my father play an instrument until I was in a, a high school. Because he never took his instrument home and in practice. He didn't need to. He played 12 yeah. hours a day. And when he started playing jazz for himself, that's when I realized. So the banter is what I thought this would be perfect for the roundtable, for that. and same, But that's what comedians are like.
0: Yeah, because yeah. there's a musicality to it.
1: Yeah. yeah, There is. Plus, when they're looking into one another's eyes and somebody has a partial memory and the other guy will complete it. So that's a cool way to get them to talk. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, so I'm really happy with hanging with Dr. Z. I'm just trying to get people to watch the YouTube channel and hopefully we'll do the next, uh, next round of. uh, All right. Yes.
0: And we, oh yeah, absolutely. A a second season and we will put the link on our show notes. uh, So look there for it. And I think we're ready to wrap up. Is everyone excited about the closing credits? Yes. I wrote these ahead. myself. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media or email us at Media Podcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Denny Tedesco. Yay. Thank you, Denny. I've been team... really looking
1: forward to this conversation, Denny. It was awesome having you here.
0: Yeah. And I... Denny, when can we expect to see immediate family, like around like what What?
2: I, I was going for... let's say February. What do you say? February. Let's do it. Let's do February.
0: Yep. Yeah. You know
1: team... well, Why don't you come back on and bring everybody and we'll do like a massive Zoom call. Oh, and we'll be just fine. promote it, help you promote yeah. it.
0: Yeah. That'd hopefully be we'll be back in the studio then and everybody can come, come over. That
1: would
0: be, be, really be in person. In-person hugs. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. Danny, that was
1: outstanding. Oh, on the, I was like, you know, I
2: think you saw my email when I first came, you said, Fritz, I'm like, oh, so excited. Oh,